Father God, we just thank you for your, your word, and we thank you for um, your actions um, in history. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the stories and judges, and uh, Lord, thank you for showing us that there are more than just stories, that they are you working um, in history to accomplish your plan. And Father God, uh, forgive us when we forget that. And also, Lord, um, thank you that you've given us your word to show us how uh, we can fit into your plan. And also forgive us when we think it's to make you fit into ours. Um, Father, we just ask that you would be with us during this time. Um, just... Uh, Open our hearts and minds uh, to what you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, all right. So here we are in Judges 6. And um, it pretty much starts out. How does it start out? Have we heard this story before? We have. Um, in fact, we hear this story over and over and over. Um, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what happened when they did that? What did God do? He turned them over to the Midianites. And um, I don't know if you guys looked to see who the Midianites were. Did anyone check and see? Yes? Let me give you a hint that uh, Moses' wife, she was, she was from Midian. She was a Midianite. So they have a long history together. Um, and I'm not going to go into that, but apparently uh, relations used to be good with, between them, but they went south somewhere along the line. Um, and that's a really good thing when you're studying because this is, it gets confusing. There are all sorts of these ites and you can gloss over them. Um, but if you go back, if you take the time to go back and figure out who these people were, where have I heard about them before in the Bible, um, it will help you build your Bible knowledge and it will help you get a bigger picture of that this isn't just a flannel graph story. This is these are people in history, and this is God working through people. Um, and so it, it just helps you if you take the time to sort out who these are. The next time that you come across them, um, you go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, over time, you will remember who they are, and it will become less of a blur to you when you're studying. So that's a good thing to do. Um, we've also... It wasn't just the Midianites, it was the Malachites and what? And yes, and the people of the East. Like, there was a big old group of people. And, um, mm hmm Yeah. 
Well, that's, and that's, yeah. And it's good too if you get to take a trip there because that helps all of these come alive too because you see, oh wow, people are still living that way. There are still people, um, it fills it out for you. Um, and yes, so this, um, this oppression, how bad was it? It was, it was very bad. And what are some of the details if you're looking, you know, as, as we go in here, uh, verse 2, um, what happened to the people of Israel when they came in, the, these hordes came in? Where, what would they do? Yeah, they went up into the mountains, into the caves, and also, um, yeah, the mountains. And it was kind of a stronghold up there, right? So they basically kind of headed for the hills. And this wasn't a one-time deal. This, was, this happened over and over and over and over. And it was a little bit different of a kind of like an, as you would say, it wasn't really an, it wasn't a political occupation. And they weren't enslaved. They were just oppressed. And what are some, I, I just love the descriptors that were here. And um, what would they do? What would the people do? They would come in, these uh, enemies. And that, what would they do? What are some of the good words? They would steal their crops. But even, yes, devour. Thank you, Vivi. Devour is a good word. That's a very descriptive word. Leave no sustenance. Um, and that here's the other thing. They would devour the produce of the land as far as where? Yeah, as far as Gaza. So, big area. And um, what did they look like when they came? They looked like locusts. And do you guys, um, have you ever looked up to see, okay, locusts, we think of locusts and we think that, oh, they fly around and they make a weird noise. Um, but really locusts in the Bible is more like grasshoppers, very large grasshoppers. And what do grasshoppers do? They eat, and they eat pretty much everything green in their path. And I don't know, you know, when we had our drought, and did you notice we had a lot more grasshoppers in town? Because, okay, everything out, outside has all been, it's all dry. It's not edible. But we're still watering our roses and stuff. So the grasshoppers come in, and they just start eating. And when it gets really bad, the grasshoppers, they eat all the green off, and then they start eating the bark off of the plants. They just consume everything. And so if you think about that, that gives you a very good picture of what was happening to the people of Israel. Um, they were coming in and they were just consuming everything. And they were leaving nothing. And the other thing about uh, locusts or grasshoppers is that you can, if you try and get rid of the ones that are there, another wave comes. That they're very hard to kill, like with pesticides and stuff. Because they're so mobile that you can't, you know, you're, yeah, you can't 
put anything on them that's going to take care of them. You can't do anything about them because there's another wave coming. And like Tony said, they were nomadic. They came in. They destroyed. And part of it was the land that they were in was not as good. It was not the land of milk and honey. This, the, the land, the land that the Israels were promised, why was it so good? Why was God giving that? What was so good about it? It was very fertile. It grew a lot of crops. It was a land of milk and honey. The, you know, think about when the spies looked, oh my goodness, the grapes were huge. All of these things. Well, here these peoples live out here and they've got camels. Oh, that's the other thing. They and their camels could not be counted. They were without number. And that's, that's an, is that hyperbole? Yes, that's, that's an exaggeration. However, it might take you a long time to count them all. You know, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's a very good descriptor of, oh my gosh, these people were without number. And they all had camels. So, I mean, what are the camels eating? They're eating all of this. And um, they laid waste to the land. And I thought about that. And I thought that part of the blessing of the land was its fertility and its crops. And they have effectively removed the blessing of the land. God has allowed that. You know, he's allowing that to happen. I'm going to take that away from you because you're not listening. So what what was the effect on Israel? Um, what... What was their countenance? What, what happened to them when all of this was going on? They were brought very low. And um, that's basically, they were impoverished. They were made small. So they were, they were very dejected. They were very, um, very humbled, but also very afraid. They were not a mighty nation. They were just heading for the hills and cowering, basically. Yes. Yeah, it's the complete opposite. Mhm. Exactly. And um, one of the other clues that this was a pretty bad oppression, how long did it take him to cry out? It was seven years. And I was thinking the last time it took him about 20, before that about eight. You know, there, it didn't take him very long to say, oh, God, you know, please help us. And so then, like Nancy was saying, how did God um, respond? This is different than before. He's, he's been responding with a, a Savior. He's been rescuing them. Uh, what did he do first this time? Yeah, he sent a prophet. And um, when you read uh, what the prophet said um, to them, um, this, this prophet was what? What was he doing uh, when he was telling them things? He was... Yes, he was reminding them. I mean, he actually was reminding them of not the blessings. He's reminding them of the Exodus and 
what he's done for them. That's true. I guess it is a blessing. He starts out that way. He ends up reminding them of what they didn't do, right? So when you look at the verbs um, of that, like what did he read through? I what? I led you out of Egypt. Um, and I brought you. Yes, I delivered you. And he not only delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, but also from the hand of all who oppressed you. So it's back then and also more recently. Um, And then he what? He drove them out before you. um, And did what? Gave you the land. And then what did he do? He said, he said, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites. So, um, then what's the big but? But, you have not obeyed my voice, and they have what? In essence, they have they violated the covenant. Um, and so, you know, when God says, you have not obeyed my voice, that's encompassing the covenant that he has with them. Um, that's a way of saying that, the poetic way of saying that. So it doesn't just mean, I said something and you didn't listen. It's, it's a bigger, bigger issue than that. And... When you look at this, all of these things that happened to them, all of these things, who was in charge of that? Who did that? And that's very important. I led you. I brought you. I delivered. Who's I? It's God. And that's huge. God did all of that. And um, that's part of what they forgot. God did all of that. And I think that's important for us to remember, too. Um, God is the one acting. God is the one in charge. And he is, he is accomplishing something. And um, they're forgetting that he has done all of this for them. And I thought then the angel of the Lord comes to see Gideon after we get this reminder And uh, he says, what does he say to Gideon? How does he address him? Oh, mighty man of valor. Okay, so is Gideon at that point a mighty man of valor? No, he's not, is he? What is he doing? He's threshing. And where is he threshing? He's threshing in a wine press. Okay, is that where you usually thresh your wheat? No. Um, and did anybody anybody here uh, see? I love these these uh, when they bring in the agrarian stuff because I'm like I know that. <laughs> but 
Okay, so you're threshing the wheat, you beat it out, and, and then you have, you have to throw it up in the air to get the chaff, which is the little coating on the outside of the seed, uh, to separate. And the, and the wind blows that away. It helps you do that process. And so, you know, when you, now when you see the combine, that's all that stuff coming out the back. Okay, well, they used to just, you know, throw it up, and the wind would do that. And so if you're in a wine press, which is down in a basically a hole, um, is, is, are you, is it easy to do that? No, you're, half of your help is gone. You're having to, like, do this and then kind of pick it out and maybe blow it. You know, it is not a good way to thresh wheat. Um, but he's doing that because why? He's hiding, yeah. You're not going to go up on the hill where the wind's good and do that because, oh my gosh, the, our enemies, the hoarders, are going to come and take the wheat because they know it's ready. Um, so he's not very brave at that point. He's hiding. And the other thing is, as you go along, um, what is the other thing Gideon, he's kind of cynical, isn't he? When he says, you know, the angel says to him, um, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so um, it, if, if that's true, then why has all this happened to us? Um, he obviously didn't listen to the prophet. Um, and he goes on and says, you know, where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? And um, he's basically kind of questioning whether or not the Lord is with us. And then he asks for a sign. Um, okay, so if the Lord is with us, um, show me a sign. And yes.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He does allow them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not he's not choosing, which is where Gideon kind of gets off track. Is he's like, oh God, why why are you choosing me? I the least, and I'm. But the thing is, it's not because of what, it's not because of Gideon's qualities. It's because of God. You know, he's going to work through him, and it's nothing intrinsic in Gideon that causes God to choose him. Um, in his might or his ability or anything like that. Yes, Philip. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he did, and if we look at, that's actually question six, is that how did God deal with Gideon in his doubt? <clears throat> yes, he did. He was, uh, he was very patient with Gideon, wasn't he? He fulfilled his request for proof. He also provided, uh, he, he knew Gideon was afraid, and he provided without Gideon asking him when we get further along in the story. Um, he actually was very, um, I'd say, uh, he was very reassuring to Gideon and did not ever rebuke him for asking for this. And um, if, if you back up to question five, think about where, uh, you know, one of the, f the first things before Gideon was going to go be a rescuer, what did the angel ask him to do before he was going to go out? What did he do? He was supposed to tear down the altars and the Asherah, and who is it that built the altars and the Asherah? It was Gideon's father, wasn't it? So if you think about Gideon and his, upbr his upbringing, what he was living in, what do you think was his view of, what did he know about God? What had he been taught about God, about Yahweh? It possibly not much. And the other thing is, would he have been basically taught that God was the one true God? He would have been, he would have had an, okay, he's not the one true God, he's one of many. We, we are worshiping these other gods. And this is what Gideon has in his, uh, that's what he's learned. And um, I, I wonder if that God was very patient with Gideon in this case because he was teaching Gideon who he was. That was part of it. Gideon did not know who God was. He did not understand who God was. And um, that that was part of it. He responded to Gideon with a great deal of grace and patience and teaching him, yes, I am who I say I am. And I will do what I say I will do. And it wasn't so much maybe... Uh, a desire of Gideon to manipulate. Um, maybe a little bit of lack of trust, but based on the fact that he didn't know who God was. Um, uh-huh. That's a good point. That's a very good point. That they were not doing their job in passing along um, and we'd gotten far enough away that they needed to be reminded. I think that's a really good point um, that um, the teaching, you know, they were supposed to. That's another indication that Israel was really falling down on the job. They were not teaching their children. They were not telling the stories. They were not 
reminding. And so the prophet had to come at this point and say, okay, I need to remind you just who I am, you know, God, who God is. Um, so anyway, that's, I think that's a very, very good. Yes, his worship is mixed. Yes. Yeah. When he says he. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think he is. He is a very confused man. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Somewhere in here, he had faith, and um, we're about to we're about to get to the point in the story where he does he does act in faith, and actually, he did act in faith. Um, he did tear down the altars to the foreign gods. He and the Asherah of his death. He did it at night, but he did it. And the thing is, we read that and we say, oh, wow, he wasn't very brave or whatever. Um, we, we have to kind of guard ourselves against reading in to that our interpretation and make sure that we're not just saying, wow, he, if he would have been a really faithful person, he would have done that during the day. Um, he, and, and it does say he was afraid, so he did that. But it doesn't say anywhere that that was being disobedient to the Lord. And so we have to remember that um, that may have been a practicality of accomplishing his task because I'm not sure he would have been able to do that had he gone during the day because the reaction of the people was, let's kill the guy. And so, you know, if, if he'd have done it when they were aware he was coming, he might not have been able to accomplish that. And sure, yes, he was afraid of the people, but he did not disobey God. So that's a good a, a good part where we do see his faith starting to work and, um, you know, cause him to act on what God has told him to do. So. Mm And he did it even though he was afraid. And that is a big part of obedience. Yes, the, their reaction to that is, a, again, a telling factor. These are Israelites that are ready to kill him for tearing down altars and uh, objects of idol worship that they shouldn't even be doing in the first place. So that is a very good picture of how 
far removed they are from being God's people, how far out of covenant they are. And Lynn. That was that was some faith using the resources to do what God had told him to do. So. The other one was used to tear down the altar. So. And I did see where that was a little bit confusing in the commentators. They're like, we're it kind of went over the map of how many bulls were killed, how many bulls were yeah. So anyway, but either way, you're right, in a time of famine, basically. Um, to be killing your food is not so great, but it is great. Yes, your yes, exactly, your source of your food. So, which is not your source of food because God is, and that's the point. Um, so, uh, let's see. We go along, and Gideon has torn down the elements of idol worship. Which is uh, also, I know some commentators had said, you know, he probably needed to, God wanted him to clean his house before he was going to go out and be the, okay, perform these mighty acts of valor for God because he needed to not be worshiping these idols and having that in his own home when he was going out. And so... He needed to take care because this is another thing that's not in all in what we've you know so far they've been straight straightforward the deliver and we've already seen we've got a prophet in this we also see he's got something to do before he goes and starts defeating the oppressors um, and you know it's like okay so why is that there why why do we have that also added in as part of our story and so. Basically, you had to, to uh, clean house. And then, okay, we've got that taken care of. And then his father actually goes to bat for him. And so the people don't kill him. And um, then Gideon, uh, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. This is in 34, verse 34. And he sounded the trumpet and he's calling all the men. To follow him. And then he does that, and then he kind of goes, Oh, well, okay, God, I, I really need to know that you're with me. And so that's when he um, does the fleeces, just to make sure, okay, God, if we're going to go do this, I want to really make sure that you're with, with us. And so he does that, and then he says, I really, really need to make sure that you're with us. So we do it again. And um, God does that, and he does not rebuke him for it. And 
I think Nancy's going to talk about this more uh, the second hour, but this is one of those instances where um, we need to be very careful when we take some part of the Bible and say, oh, well, Gideon did this, so I can do that, um, and use that as a backup for, you know, deciding to test God. Other areas of the Bible say you do not test God. And so you have to be sure that this is in the whole story of what God is doing through Gideon and not pull it out. And that's where we get into trouble um, taking little pieces of the Bible and applying them directly to us without knowing the context of what's going on. It's a very good example. So, um, then he gets his assurance and he decides to go. And what does God do? He has the... God says, yes, you have too many men. And how many men did he have? He had 32,000, which is a good number of men. That's, is it? No, he started with 32,000. And then, uh, to start, we're going to do, do the math here. Okay, so then what's the first thing that God tells him to do? It says, all, the, all of the men that are fearful, they head home. So that's 22,000. Woo. Already you've just, you've got 10,000, right? <laughs> There's a lot of people, two-thirds of these people are going, woo. Okay. <laughs> so, and and this is another thing where you can read commentaries and they can go off pages and pages and pages of why God sent the fearful ones home and why God sent the lap. Let's see, the kneelers home and not the lappers and all of that. And those are interesting, but it. I think sometimes it kind of gets you away from the fact that God is doing this and it's not so that by their might they can accomplish this task. It's so that... So, then God sends... I was... Okay. The, the men... These are the kneelers. And that leaves 300 lappers. <laughs> exactly. That's, that might be true. That's a speculation. And the thing about it is, why did God do that? And your answer is uh, in verse 2. Yes, the reason God did it 
Pues. Okay. Yes. Already we're outnumbered. So it's an No, he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm So, yes, and that's, and that's nice because God, I mean, it's, he says it right there. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give, to the Midianite, give the Midianites into their hand. You've got too many people here for me to give them into your hand. I'm already giving them into your hand, but there's too many. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand saved us. And so that is... Again, it, it is interesting to read the, that may be the case or it may not, but that's not the reason. Um, and the reason is because God did not want them to even faintly think that it was because of their own strength or might that they were able to defeat the Midianites. And then you can see that it for sure wasn't because of their strength and might, when how was Midian defeated? What did they do? They had trumpets and they had torches. And they kind of surrounded on three sides. They surrounded the camp. And then what did they do? They made a lot of noise. They broke their jars and they blew their trumpets. But if you look at when, when did they do this? It was in the middle of the night. Um, it was the middle watch. So what's happening is this camp of 130, a third of these guys are getting up out of their tent in the middle of the night um, because they have to go on watch. The other ones are coming back. And what happened? They fought each other. Did, did, the, did Gideon and his men fight? No, not at all. The, the Midianites basically fought themselves and then ran away. <laughs> so um, they did not raise a sword. 
Yes. They were already on edge, weren't they? Because they, oh, this dream, which is another one, that's the one where God assured Gideon without Gideon asking. You know, if you're afraid, go down and listen. And here was this dream that that's probably circulating around camp. Ah, we're already scared. And then um, that's how God, it said, how is Midian defeated? By God, basically. So Gideon has actually changed from where he was at the beginning of this story. Um, is he more, uh, does he more closely resemble the mighty man of valor at this point? So he, was, he was basically doing exactly what God told him to do and acting. And, um, you know, as we go along in our story, did he remain along that track? Did Gideon remain along that? <laughs> yeah, Marilyn, I think he had more than a hiccup. He kind of cratered after this. He, like, I, I drew the... This is Gideon's trajectory, and then he <laughs> like this, and this is the battle with the Midianites. He's acting in, this is at the wine press. Um, he is acting in God's power and doing what God has him do. But what happens And this kind of goes into, was Gideon a hero after defeating the Midianites? He was. He was a hero. And um, he was, he also kind of started going off on his own tack, didn't he? What did he do? He did. He collected the, but even before that, he started being kind of vindictive in his, his actions. He, he was pursuing um, the, let's see, who was he pursuing first? Because he started going off and, um, yeah, the, the, yeah, he was going after the princess, and he got mad at the people who wouldn't help him on the way. That was what I was trying to remember. He got mad at them, and he came back, and he punished them. And then um, the other two princes, he killed, and he didn't kill them because God had told him to. Why, why did he kill them? Because, yes, he had killed his, uh, his, his brothers, and he, um, he was taking revenge, wasn't he? So he was kind of getting off the track of being you know doing what God had told him to do so and then yes he was collecting um, how well did he handle his fame yes exactly <laughs> he did really well just like the rest of us um <laughs> No, he he really he started collecting the gold, the spoils. 
Um, and what did that sound like? What did it sound like? Where have we heard that story? Exactly, the golden calf started doing this. And what was the deal? He made an ephod with all the gold. You know, okay, pay tribute to me. And that, an ephod, it was not something to worship a foreign god, was it? It was, it was something used in um, worship of Yahweh. But the problem with it was what? What was the problem? Well, yeah, they did. They made it into an idol, and it, where was it? It and it was at his home, and it was supposed to be at Shiloh. Is it Shiloh? Yeah, and and it was something that the priest wore. And Gideon wasn't even in the priestly clan. He wasn't. He wasn't a Levite. And so he's. So here is the thing where he's going. I'm. I'm worshiping Yahweh, just not how he told me to. And that's kind of it's convicting for me. Um, but also, it kind of explains, woo, that was not good. And it sets up, um, yes, they had peace for 40 years, but they were already on this way downward trajectory towards the next evil in the sight of the Lord. And it really sets up for, wow, next week's a mess. But because um, his son, oh, wow, they're really, <laughs> it, it started going south right there where Gideon is doing things that he shouldn't be. And yes. Exactly. Phyllis has the perfect point. It's, it's mixing glorifying God with self-glorification, and they don't mix. Um, and, yeah, I think that's very true. And that helps us, you know, after you get through this story and you think about what has this taught us about God's character. And I know we are uh, thinking about this question every week. Um, but I think that's because we need to be thinking about this question every week. And the more that we know about God's character and who he is, um, just like in the beginning when Gideon didn't understand who God was, did you see how that messed with his uh, being able to have faith and um, being able to do what God asked him to do? And if we don't know God's character, and we don't know who God is and how jealous he is uh, for his glory um, and that we would do that, all of us, then we get way off track. And also, he is also what? God is true to what? His covenant that he made the Israelites were not true, and that's why they were in the mess they were in. But God was true, and he sends deliverers, and he gathers his people back in, and he sends prophets to remind them who he is and the covenant. And he does this over and over and over. And he does that because 
Spotify. Oh, yeah. That's it. Yes. Yes, he is just, that's exactly, Teresa, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's all part of it. The discipline is part of it as well. He's keeping his people together uh, to accomplish his purpose because he has a plan. Um, and part of that, keeping them together is the discipline, the reminding, the rescuing, the discipline, the reminding, the rescuing, and he does it over and over. And he is faithful to his covenant. Exactly. And all of those things are part of his mercy and compassion. And that includes giving them over into the hands of the Midianites. So, all right. We, yes, Phyllis. Yes, it's very easy to be blind to that behavior in our lives, which is where we need to pray God would open our hearts to point it out to us so that we can repent. So, All right, we have about five minutes, and then we'll reconvene. I hope you have, are thoroughly enjoying this study of Judges. It has been fun for me. And, and I mean that. It's a lot of work for me every week, preparing these lessons for you and studying. Um, I'm really not that smart, y'all. I just have to work really, 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 really hard. And so it's, it's a lot of work, but it's been fun. And I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I love the Old Testament. And I, I find it um, so fascinating and so interesting. And Judges, to me, is an, an incredible book. I know Pat's discovering how fun this book is because she said, "Would you? can I tell on you, you really didn't like this book. Her least favorite book of the, of the whole entire Bible, but she was a good sport last semester, texted me that and said, but let's study Judges. <laughs> so, so we are. And I want to go back over some of the things about Gideon. And what we're going to talk about is this whole concept of signs and what Gideon does, or fleecing. Because have, haven't we all asked for signs before? Who, who's asked for a sign? Did you see the sign? What kind of signs have you asked for? Come on, confession time, be honest. What? Anybody want to give an example? Tell on yourself. Okay, thank you.
So if I can rephrase what you did, Annetta, is you put God in a box and said, you can give me a sign as long as it's within these parameters. And then there was no confidence in that sign because then other signs started happening that seemed to refute God's answer. Would that be a good summation? Okay, somebody else? Who wants signs? Who doesn't want that red phone? I want that red phone, the direct line, right? So that when I'm not sure what to do, I, I get that phone call that's directly to me or the little red letter in the mailbox, Nancy, here's your answer, and I want it black and white. Don't, wouldn't we all confess we really want that? And that we all tend to put little signs out. Haven't you done the, well, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to go here, and I'm going to go do this, if when I pull in the parking lot, there is a parking space up front. And then you find one up front, but you drove around seven times to find the one up front. Exactly. So, so we, all, we all do it. I, I found myself guilty of doing it this week. You know, I'm, try, I'm in a place in my life I'm trying to make a, a decision. It's not a, it's not a huge decision, but it's a decision. And honestly, there's probably not a right or a wrong. E either choice I choose, God can be glorified and his kingdom can be advanced. So there's not a right or a wrong. But I'm looking for a sign. And I even went, I went into the situation one day thinking, okay, if this happens today, I know that's it. There's my sign. I'm supposed to make this other choice. Well, good grief. If I go in enough days, it's going to happen. If it didn't, it didn't happen that day. But if I do this day after day, it is going, what I'm asking for is a sign. Is It's going to happen. I'm just going to tell you that. So, um, we wanna, so anyway, we all do it, and we're all guilty of it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's really the truth of the matter, very much so. But have you ever heard or have you ever told someone or have you ever told yourself, well, why don't you put out a fleece? Have you used those phrases? Have you used that vocabulary? Anybody? Or have you heard it? Hmm? Why have you put out a fleece? Meaning what? Have you, like Gideon, asked for a sign? Not literally, I'm going to get a fleece and ask God to perform the same thing that he did for Gideon, but do like Gideon and put out a sign and see if this really is the direction God is wanting you to go or as discernment for God's will. So let's back up. Let's look first just at Gideon. Brenda has taken you through the text. We're going to focus in a little more closely at the signs and Gideon, and Gideon's situation, and then look at other examples in the scriptures where people have asked for signs, or God has, without their asking, given them a sign, and then see what kind of conclusions we can draw about this whole issue of signs. Does that make sense? Okay, so we have Gideon and the whole issue of signs. Gideon, if we want to look at his context, and we talked about this the first hour, 
He is living in a time where Israel has become incredibly disloyal and unfaithful to the covenant promises that God has made. And as a result of that, they are suffering the consequences of that broken covenant. The Midianites are oppressing them, and they are oppressing them to such a degree that they are fearful and they are having to hide out and do very natural things in very unnatural places. Threshing wheat in a wine press is not what they should be doing. And they are scared. They are humiliated by these Midianites that come in and terrorize them. And they are in great distress to the point that they cry out for God. Not only that, you remember last, when we did, was it last week we did, Deborah? And Jim made the comment, the fact that there is a woman could be an indicator of how broken this culture is. This, all of these things that are occurring show you how broken this culture is as a result of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. It is very broken. It is broken to the point that they have altars to Baal and Asherah, and they are worshiping. It is broken to the point that, that God has to send a prophet to say, do you not remember what I did for you? I led you. I brought you out. I performed miracles in your sight. I gave you what I promised you I would give you. I brought you into this land. I helped you. I, I drove out the inhabitants before you. I gave you victory so that you could let, settle and live in this land. And but the big but, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have brought all of this down on yourself. And here is poor Gideon in a syncretized, you know, syncretism is, is a big word, syncretism. It's not that they, when it says they forgot God, it's not that they just have no idea who Yahweh is. We'll just include him among, in, in the worship of everybody else. I'm going to cover all my bases. I don't have enough faith in God that he's really going to bring the rain and the storm so that my crops can be fertile and grow, especially when I see these Canaanites over here who have those things. And it looks like Baal is doing that for them, so I'll just cover my bases and worship Baal as well and put all of this together. And this is Gideon's context. This is where Gideon has grown up. His father, he is asked to tear down those altars because it's his father who has built those altars. This is Gideon's world. You can understand why he's so confused and why he would ask for this first sign. Look at this first sign. After God comes to him and says, O mighty man of valor, valor the Lord is with you. You're the one that's going to go up and defeat the Midianites. And he asks for a sign. And he says, oh, let me, let me, don't, don't leave. Look what he says in verse 18. Please don't depart till I can bring something to you. But look in 17. And Gideon says to him, to the Lord, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign what? Show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. I need to know this is you, not somebody else. Is, is this really God? That's what he's asking. He's not questioning, at least at this point, he's not questioning the uh, direct God's direction of, I want you to be the one to go do. He's questioning, are you really Yahweh? And I need a sign to confirm that, that that's who's speaking to me. Because he doesn't know God well enough to know. That is who is speaking to him. So he asks for this sign, and he prepares the unleavened cakes, the young goat, the ephah flour, 
and he brings it out, and the angel of the Lord says, take it. Now pour broth on it. Get it wet. Because I want to be sure you really understand who I am. Because I'm getting it wet, and then I'm touching it, and it's going to flame in fire. What, what is this? If you could use one word, what, what is this? What is this sign? What is descriptive of this first sign? Okay, so sign number one, it's a miracle. Because there's one, why would all that burn if it's been doused with broth? It's wet. And two, the angel of the Lord, what does he do? He just takes the tip of his staff, which is in his hand, and touches it. And fire springs up from a rock and consumes the meat and the unleavened cakes. So he gets... He asked for a sign, and the sign is not for discernment of God's will. The, he knows God's will. That has been made very clear. The sign is for confirm to me who is saying this to me. Do y'all see the difference? Because we tend to think of Gideon and fleecing as I need to know God's will. Gideon clearly knows God's will. There isn't any question about that. Okay, so we have that first sign. Notice the sequence of events. This is interesting in Gideon's life. He gets this sign. God confirms, yes, I am Yahweh. I am not Baal. Gideon is then able to obey, and he tears down his father's altars. He does do that. So you see this element of faith there when we're talking about when uh, Nelda was bringing up how he is mentioned in Hebrews as a man of faith and doing mighty acts. Then notice in 434, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. It's a key phrase, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. In the Old Testament, they were not endowed and sealed with the Holy Spirit like we are, where the Holy Spirit is always in us. The Holy Spirit came and went, and you tend to see the Holy Spirit showing up and falling on someone or clothing someone or empowering someone when God needs them to do a task for him. But, that, but the Holy Spirit can also be withdrawn. You see that with Saul. Was when Saul continues to be disobedient, that God withdraws his Holy Spirit from him. If you go and you read the account of Saul. So he is clothed with the Holy Spirit he has the courage to sound the trumpets, call out the Abiziorites, Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, Nephtali, and call all these people. But then what does he do? What happens? What's the sequence? What's he do? I've got them all gathered. I've been told hmm? he wants another sign. Why? Yeah. So again, he says, well, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, so he's wanting to, what is he wanting? He's wanting confirmation, isn't he? Again, he's want, I want it confirmed. So he asks for the fleece. I'm going to put a fleece out. 
and um, see if the, if it gets if the dew is on the fleece alone and the dry and the ground is dry, then I'll know. I'll know that you will save Israel. Is the dry is the ground dry and the fleece wet? Yeah. Gideon gets his sign. His again, what kind of sign is it? Both of these. They are what? They're a miracle. Especially the second one, because he puts it on the fleece on the ground. The ground is wet. The fleece is dry because the fleece would have absorbed all that water. And yet it's dry. So two times with reverse order, he asks God. And do you notice the second time he even says, don't, don't be angry with me. Please don't be angry with me. But can I just ask this one more time? Because I really need to be sure that what you say is going to happen is going to happen. Before, you remember what Brenda had the math out up here? Of course, it hasn't been whittled down yet. We're at 32,000 men. Before I take my 32,000 against the 130, that four, seven years have been oppressing us to the point we are so dejected and so low and so humiliated and so incapable of doing anything. So I really need to know this is you. How does God respond? Does he say, Gideon, I told you, I told you what I wanted you to do. Now get out there and go do it. Does he say that? No. Do you see his patience? He gives him. He lets, he does it. He gives him the sign. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't show um, any impatience with him. But instead, he, he just does it. He doesn't even make an evaluation of it. He seems to be very very kind. He doesn't rebuke him at all. and doesn't. Instead, he just, he just does it. And then again, he does the miraculous. Now, here's what's interesting. It's after that that then Gideon gets up, and he's ready to go. And notice what God does. God says, wait a minute. Got too many men. Your 32,000 against 130 is too many. So Gideon, go out there and tell the ones that are afraid, go on home. And two-thirds of them go, right? Now, put yourself in Gideon's shoes. <laughs> he's, he's been asking for God for signs to be sure this is what you really told me. Consider his context. Remember that phrase? Consider his context as well as the context of the word what he's up against and what he's facing and what he's been experiencing in his lifetime. God says, no, we're going we're gonna to whittle that down some more. Take the men down to the water, and I'm going to separate them out by those who kneel and those who lap. And he has 300 that are qualified or chosen to go with him. Does Gideon ask for a sign at this point? He doesn't. But does he get one? Look at that. God gives him a sign because God says he whittles down this army down to 300. And then he says, I have give, go, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But look in verse 10, the next chapter. But Gideon, if you're afraid to go down, Go, up, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and listen, over here. Go down there, sneak in, listen to the conversation. 
of the Midianites if you're afraid. And of course, we know he is afraid. Who wouldn't be afraid? And he does go down. He does listen. And he hears God gives him kindly, gently, compassionately more affirmation. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am going to use you to do this, and you will be victorious. Dundee? Do you see God's character in that? You see, this time, the sign, these signs, Gideon asked for. Sign number four, this is the fourth sign, God just gives. God gives him that sign to reassure him. And in that reassurance, he is, with faith, able to take his 300 men, come up with a plan to separate them, attack in the middle of the night, basically cause an incredible amount of confusion that causes the Midianites to turn against themselves and kill each other. He never has to draw the sword against them. Now still, you have to see God's hand in that, that that was successful because God was in it. God had said, I'm, I'm giving them into your hand. God is the one that was, able, was the author behind that, all of that confusion. But Gideon did it, and he did it obediently. And to me, there's a huge amount of faith on his part that he would do that. Because he is so outnumbered, and this plan could fail. Do you all see that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. So here we have, is that me making that noise? Sorry. I can't quit reading, y'all. Somebody go get Steve. Okay. Or text him. Okay, so what we have here is a count of what did happen. You know, what did happen. Not necessarily what should happen. Simply because something is recorded in Scripture as historical event doesn't mean it's a precedent then for how we are to live our life or things that we are to do. We've got to go look at other examples to pull in. We can't just take this one incident and say this is how it should work. We've got to go look at other examples, other incidents of where are signs given, where are signs asked for, where and when and what happens in those. So let's turn to Genesis 24. I'm sorry, you all. It's getting worse. Am I? Y'all better behave. They're trying to get me to not breathe. I have to breathe. I am breathing, child. Is that better? Better. Okay, 
We got it. Thank you, Steve. I'm sorry. It's bizarre to hear yourself breathing like that. I'm just going to say. Okay, Genesis 24. We go to Genesis 24, starting in... It's still doing it. I'm sorry. Is that better, Patty? Okay. Can you all hear? Okay, in Genesis 24, Abraham is old. He's advanced in his years. He has his son Isaac, and he sends his servant to try to back to his people to try to find a wife for, for Isaac. So the servant is, is sent back. Um, let's start in 6. Abraham said to him, See you to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who swore to me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his thigh, hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So the servant takes his master's camels, he departs, he takes all sorts of choice gifts, he arose, he goes to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And when he made, the, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women would go out to draw water, and he said, Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of the water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And if you read the rest of the story, that is what happened. Because it is, it is Rebecca who is there, and Rebecca offers to water all of his camels. So here in Genesis, if I'm looking at other examples, in Genesis 24, he asks for a sign. The servant asks for a sign. He asks for it, and God gives it by showing him who, through the circumstances that this is the one that is to be the wife. She will go with you. She will go back. She will not stay here. She will go to the promised land. She will marry your son. Turn to 2 Kings 20. 2 Kings is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is sick. He is dying. Is your context. He is near, in verse 1, he is near the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and I've done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He doesn't want to die yet. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. 
I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my sake and for my David's servant's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them down and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Now look what Hezekiah says. And Hezekiah says, he's heard from the prophet Isaiah. No doubt about what God's will is. I'm going to give you 15 more years. Right there, he could just wait and see if he died. And there would be the sign, wouldn't it? If God was right, God said you're going to die. You just kind of hold off and wait. You'll know for sure if that's really going to happen. But he says, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And then I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day. And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. Rather, let the shadow go back 10 steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord and he brought the shadow back 10 steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. So you have here an example in 2 Kings, Hezekiah. Does Hezekiah have a clear word from the Lord? He does have a clear word. I'm going to give you 15 more years. But Hezekiah, he asks for a sign. God gives the sign. Does not rebuke him. He does not get angry with him. He just gives him a choice. Which one do you want? And he's allowed the harder choice, and God confirms it. So in this one, in this case, we've got an example of revealing the will of God, who, and the second one, we have a case of God confirming what he has already revealed. I'm sorry, y'all. Okay, you what? I know, it's my head. I think it's, you know what? Hang on. There we go. We'll just conquer that thing with a bobby pin. That should do it. Can y'all hear? All righty. Just have to have these womanly advancements. Okay. Luke 11. Actually, go to Matthew 12 first. A New Testament example of someone asking for a sign. Matthew 12, verse 38. The scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus. They're answering him. They're having a discussion. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's different this time in Matthew? And there's this also recorded in Luke. 
Who's who's asking? The Pharisees and the scribes are asking. Why does he refuse them? What, What clues are there in the text? Why does he this time say, no, I'm not giving you one? Why does this time does he rebuke them and say, you are an evil and wicked and adulterous generation that you ask for a sign? They already know what? Somebody said something over here. Because they have because they have a hard heart. Hasn't he already shown who he is? What what is Jesus doing the whole time during his ministry? He's showing signs. He's performing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Everywhere he goes, he's healing people. He turns five, you know, the loaves and the fishes into enough, the small little boy's lunch into enough food to feed, feed the thousands. If you, if you go to the purpose statement of, of John, the Gospel of John, let's just go there. Go to the Gospel of John, John 30. No, John 20, there aren't 30 chapters, good grief. In John 20, John 20, verse 30, whole purpose statement of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He did these signs. And these signs are recorded to authenticate who he was, that he is the Savior, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the one sent from the Father, the second person of the Trinity. And so that in seeing those, they might believe this about who he is. But you all know the whole story. What happened as he gave all of these signs? What were the results? It, it did what, Tony? Well, that until after. That until after he ascends into the heaven and the holy into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes. What's the response of people? There's two responses. Well, some of them want to kill him. What? Yes, you see a response of people wanting his miracles, but not him. So that when he gets a little more specific in John about what he's asking, a lot of them leave. Some of them do believe. They do see because of these things. This is, their eyes are open and they see, yes, this is Jesus. This is the Christ. And therefore they believe and they follow him. But then you have such an example of the religious leaders of the day who are the repositories of the majority of everything, of the God's word. They're the ones that know God's word and know the prophecies. They're the ones. Remember back here? They're the back here in, in Matthew, they're the ones that say, Give us a sign. And he says, No. And he says, No, because I already gave you a sign. I've already revealed to you who I am. So in many of the signs had the opposite effect. It it just hardened the heart even further. It showed and revealed a hard heart that was already there. Do you all see that? Questions, comments? Yeah, a sign will, a sign, that's very good. Let me, if we think about signs, if we want to, 
draw some conclusions about signs, one would be that it does. It reveals the heart. It certainly does in this case with Matthew because he refuses to give him any more signs. He's already given him a sign and they, they, their heart is hard. Essentially, if I paraphrase what he's saying is, why would I give you another sign because you're still not going to believe? I've already given you all the signs that I'm going to give. I'm going to give you one last sign. Remember, I'm going to give you one last sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. And that is, I will die, I will be buried, and I will raise. But we also know the rest of the story. They're going to see that, and they're still not going to believe. They'll see that sign and not believe. Okay, let's continue on. Some, t- some examples are when God gives a sign. If you go to Exodus 3, anybody know what happens in Exodus 3? It's Moses. There's your hint. Law has not been given. Israel's under oppression from the Egyptians, and they have cried out. And God is in the process of raising up Moses. Moses, in verse 1, is keeping his flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And the angel of the Lord pierced to him in a flame of fire outside the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great, great sight, why the bush is not burned. Who's giving the sign? God has given the sign. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off your, the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, I, will surely, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of Egypt and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then if you continue on, he says to him, Come, I will send you, Moses, (laughs) to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says, Well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And he begins begins to kind of question, you know, is he the one to do it? And God reassures him that, yes, he is. But do you see in that point, in that example, these people ask for signs, although God gives one. Here, God gives the sign. And in approaching Moses, he gives him the sign before he even speaks to him of the burning bush that is not consumed to get his attention that it is me speaking. And if I'm asking you to do this thing, here's the authenticating sign that I am who I say that I am and I will do this. Then look what he says and go on down to Exodus 4. As it gets a little interesting in Exodus 4. Because Moses begins to argue that, well, the people aren't even going to listen to me. Why would they listen to me? I'm just Moses who's been out here for 30 years in the wilderness. And why, why would they believe me? The Lord, the Lord did not appear to you, they'll say. Look in verse 2. The Lord said, what is that in your hand? He says, staff. He threw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. 
that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back in the cloak. So he put his hand back in the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If you will not believe me, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become the blood on the dry ground. So he's saying, here's signs again. I'm giving you signs first, these miraculous signs, to bolster your faith and to strengthen you. And I'm give, in your staff, I'm going to let you perform these signs so you can convince the people in the same way I've just convinced you. But look what happens with Moses. He says, oh, Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord says, who has made man's womb? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, oh, Lord, please send somebody else. Look what happens this time. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God got mad this time. I've given you a burning bush. I have changed this staff done things with this staff, and I'm going to give it to you for you to do the same signs. And you just continue to argue with me and to say, send somebody else. And the result is God gets a little angry. And I don't think I want him angry. We see God's anger at him because he continues to doubt when he has given him all of these signs. We don't have time, but a couple others you could look at. In 1 Kings 13, 1 through 5, Jeroboam. Jeroboam and Rehoboam were the two sons of Solomon. Rehoboam stayed in the south um, where Jerusalem, the appointed place of worship, was. Jeroboam's in the north, and he is disobedient and unfaithful to the covenant and sets up kind of his own place to worship and his own idols for them to worship. And Isaiah, who in Isaiah's, no, nope, no, nope, I'm getting my stories confused, sorry. Anyway, he, he sets them all up, and he's trying to um, make, I've got my stories confused. Read Jeroboam. Jeroboam is trying, yeah, he does set up a new worship system, but he's also trying to make an alliance with the king of Syria because others are coming against him, and God doesn't want him to do that. And God confronts him and says, ask me for a sign. Any sign you want, and I'll do it. And in his false modesty, he goes, oh, no, I wouldn't want to put the Lord to the test because it reveals his heart. He's going to be disobedient no matter what. He continues to make that alliance with the king of Assyria. And as a result, God gives him a sign and takes him out. Kind of the same thing. If you go to Isaiah 7, you have Ahaz, uh, another example. Again, I think I've got my details confused. Just read those, Isaiah 7, 1 through 17. But here's where I want to go. Obviously, these are not all the examples of where signs are given or signs are asked. They're just a sampling. And it's fun to kind of go through and trace all this whole concept in, in the scripture. But I think we can draw a few conclusions from this. We've already seen that signs, they really do reveal the heart. What's Gideon's heart? 
Gideon's afraid. Gideon is weak in faith. The Pharisees have a hard heart and a heart of unbelief. So if I look at signs and the asking for them, it's really more of a revelation of what's really in my heart. And it's generally a revelation, for us anyway, of weakness or lack of faith in what God has revealed. Another thing about signs, they are not enough to inspire belief. Is what does, or to assure belief, because Gideon has to keep asking for another one and then another one. The people of Israel see God perform, see Jesus performing signs, and yet they still don't believe they want more signs. What, what do we tend to do? If we, if we ask for a sign, it's very selective and it's very subjective. I love, exactly what you did. Anetta, I gave a subjective, selective sign. And then when the circumstances seem to work against it, then I begin to doubt, was my sign a good sign or not? So they really don't, they really don't strengthen faith as much. They might, and they don't, they're rarely a revelation of God's will. Yes. Good question. How do we? Can we ask? See, then that becomes the question. Can I ask for a sign? Can I ask for a sign? Okay. 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 What if both doors are equal and it doesn't really matter which one, kind of what Nelda was saying? It's, it gets a little muddy and a little confusing, doesn't it? Well, here's one thing to consider. Sometimes when we're asking for a sign, if we're going to follow the principle of, of, of these signs, then you need to ask for something miraculous. You know, a good story I heard was from a, uh, a seminary professor that was talking to a student, and she was trying to decide if she was going to go skiing or not spring break and was trying to discern God's will. And he said, well, how are you going to discern that? Well, my dad, if this check comes in the mail this week, then I'll know I'm supposed to go. Well, he says, well, does your dad normally send money? Yeah, he normally does. <laughs> so the professor said, well, if you really want to know, if you really want to follow the biblical principle and know if, if God is saying go or not, then I think what you need is to set up something a little more miraculous, and that is that you're going to get a letter from the President of the United States this week, specifically to you that says, Brenda, go on that ski trip. You should go. And then, just in case, back it up with, the Secretary of the State is going to send you a letter addressed to you that says, Brenda, go on that ski trip. Do you see? Do you see? In all of these, it's something very, very miraculous that happens. But it's a good question to end with. And I know I'm not exhaustively dealing with it. How do we, what's, a, what's the way we do it? I want you to see the limitations of it. 
and how it really often reveals, it will reveal a hard heart, it will reveal a weak heart, a heart that's weak in faith, or it's a smokescreen, God has already told you what to do. In these, in these passages in Kings and Isaiah, they know what they're supposed to do, they don't want to do it. So it's a smokescreen to not do what God has already revealed for me to do. So let me look for a sign to see if maybe you'll change your mind. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but here, here's, here's something to consider. Here's, in answering your question, here's something to consider. What did Gideon not have? What did he not have to discern God's will? He did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What else was he missing? All he had was oral tradition. He does not have this whole thick thing, this whole revealed will of God. There's so much of his revealed will in here that is clear and black and white. And you say, I love what this one speaker said this week. She goes, and if you want to hear God speak, let you version read it to you out loud. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> then you will hear God speak. But here's, hang on, just say, here's, here's, here's what, here are a few pointers. Here's what you do. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of God richly dwell in you. Be in his word so much so much of what we're struggling with is right here. So much of what I've seen in my experience in administering to people is they already know God's will. They're looking for a way out of what is hard to do. Or they are completely ignorant of God's word to know how he has revealed himself and what his will is. Romans 12, 1 and 2, what did we just study last semester? Somebody pull up Romans 12. Let's look. Let's just go there. Romans 12. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, which is such a revelation of who he is and his character and his will and his plan for our lives and what he has done. I should have this memorized. Amen. Yeah. So catch that phrase. Do not be conformed to this world, but contrast transformed by the renewal of your mind. Where is the renewal of your mind? Where does it happen? It happens in here. It happens in his word, in prayer, as you submit to the Holy Spirit, and then you will discern what the word of God is. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for God. Open doors or show me, confirm, especially when you're doubting. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I need some kind, for lack of a better word, sign, guidance, open door, because I really don't know your will. I think where we get into trouble is we do know his will, and we're looking for a sign. Does that make sense? Okay. You had a comment? Yes, we walk by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. You know what? What did what did Jesus say to Thomas? 
when Thomas appears to him, he wants to see the whole, and he shows him. But then he says, blessed are those that believe and did not see. So, you know, what, what is the whole New Testament saying? We walk by faith, not by sight. And we have the basis. Where, where does faith come? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Romans, we've, we've got that. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit in us. There's so many things we're out searching for that we don't, it's right here. We just need to be in it. You know, another thing I would add to that, and I know we're out of time, is um, I, love the, I love what Jesus says when he says, sums up the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all of your soul. Boy, if you're doing that, and you're following him wholeheartedly and honestly with a pure heart, he's not going to let you go off and make some decision you shouldn't be making. It's when we sin that we do that. But also, you know, there's wisdom in seeking wise counsel. You know, we talk about community all the time in this church. There's wisdom in seeking wise counsel. There's nothing wrong with putting on a piece of paper pros and cons and asking those people that will tell you the truth what is wise counsel for me in making this decision. But I'll throw a kink in that. Sometimes God has you do things that look like you're up against the odds. So then you've got to think about that. Okay? Any other comments, questions? Have a good week.